Arrogant self-righteousness leads to condemnation, but humble faith-righteousness leads to commendation. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. There was a classic television show that had a memorable catchphrase, and I'm sure many of you remember it. It was this. Smile, you're on Candid Camera. How many of you remember that show, or we used to watch that show, right? Well, this program that was hosted by Alan Funt would set up hidden cameras and then film people as they were put in unusual, often humorous situations, like, for example, going into a grocery store and there would be free samples there, but they were made to just taste horrible, right? And just seeing how people reacted to that then. Or maybe the cashier would give out change only in pennies. This was back, we used to use this thing called cash. Remember that? You'd go into a store, you'd pay with cash for that, and you'd get change, right? And so we'd pay it only with pennies. And so people would be filmed responding to these things. It was the show in which they said people were caught in the act of being themselves. Uh, by the way, you know, I, I read something amusing this week about Alan Funt. Turns out, true story here, he was on an Eastern Airlines flight from Newark to Miami in 1969 when the flight was hijacked to Cuba. You remember that? All that was going on all the time, those airlines constantly being hijacked and going to Cuba. What was it about Cuba, by the way? Does anybody know? Why were they trying to get to Cuba all the time? I mean, I'd want to go to the Bahamas or something, you know? But, but anyway, so, so they, it was hijacked there. But the, some of the passengers, they recognized him, Alan Funt, from Candid Camera, and so they didn't believe him. They thought it was a joke that this wasn't really happening there. But he was trying to say, no, this is not being... We're not doing this. This is really happening. Well, they ended up landing in Havana and stayed there about 11 hours, and then they did believe him then after that point then. so. But anyway, though, the people caught in the act of being themselves. How would you like to be caught in the act of being yourself? No? no? Yeah. How would you feel now if I told you that, you know, actually we've had secret hidden cameras that have captured everything you said and did this past week. And in fact, we're all going to watch the footage of it here now. How many of you would be the first one out the door, you know, right, if, if that were the case? Well, fortunately, we don't have any footage like that, but someone did see everything you said and did this week. And not only that, he didn't just see everything you said and did, he also knows everything you thought. Right? You might say, smile, you're on heaven's camera, right? Well, the thought for that can be a little bit troubling, can it? But isn't it good to know, though, that if your faith is in Christ, all of those sinful thoughts, those words and deeds are forgiven, though. But nevertheless, God knows. And it is also important, it is true that we are indeed all works in progress. None of us are right now what we will be. Yes, all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven with regard to our eternal salvation. And we have been given the gift of a perfect right standing before God in Christ. 
But the reality is all of us have a very long way to go toward being like Christ right now in practice, don't we? So it is true. We are all works in progress. None of us are what we will yet be. But nevertheless, nevertheless, there is a critical difference between the genuine believer who is not yet what he or she will one day be in Christ and the person who is not truly a believer and is fooling himself or herself. There is a critical, eternal difference between the imperfect believer and the unbelieving hypocrite or play actor. And today, we are going to see what Jesus had to say to a group of hypocrites who were fooling themselves about their relationship to God and then contrast that with what he had to say to a humble, genuine believer. We're continuing today in our series, Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a harmony of the Gospels, taking the message of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and putting them together into one flowing, harmonious account in the order of events as suggested in this book by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life. And for today, then, we are calling this, then, Eight Woes and One Widow, Eight Woes and one widow. And it's a harmony from Matthew 23, Mark 12, and Luke 20 and 21. And what is the big idea? What is the main thing that I want us to take away from our message today? And that is this, that arrogant self-righteousness leads to condemnation, but humble faith-righteousness leads to commendation. Self-righteousness condemnation, faith righteousness, commendation. Before we look at our text, a little context here. Jesus has journeyed to Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly ministry. He knows he will soon be going to the cross where he will give his life. He has clearly presented himself to the nation, but many have misunderstood him and the religious ruling authorities have rejected him. And Jesus wept over the city because he knew of the unbelieving hearts of the people and he knew the judgment that lay ahead for them because of their rejection of him. But even as some did believe in Jesus, there were many though, many, including the religious leaders of the nation then, who did reject him. And Jesus called them out for their self-righteous hypocrisy. And unsurprisingly, they didn't like that. They didn't like what they were hearing from him, and they sought to kill him. And they tried to trip him up by asking him a series of questions designed to put him in a difficult spot. But of course, he astounded them, though, with his answers to them, and they failed to entrap him. Today, then, we're going to listen in as as he renders a verdict, then, on them, on their hearts, on their corrupt, hypocritical hearts. But we will also listen in as he commends a poor widow for her humble faith in contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees. Now I need to warn you here today 
Today is one of those fire hose messages. How many of you know what I mean by that, when the fire hose message that we're going to come on? It's like turning on that fire hose and the water. there's going to be a lot coming out at you here today. So I know there's going to be a lot coming at you and there's a lot of scripture today. But rather than getting overwhelmed by the fire hose, I would ask you just to take a moment right now and say quietly to the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to hear today? What do you want me to take away from all of this here today? So our first passage here then from Matthew 23, Mark 12, Luke 20 says, Then in his teaching, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." So we want to start off here first by looking at some warnings, some warnings that Jesus has for his disciples and the multitudes who were listening to him. This first warning we might summarize this way, saying, obey God's law, but don't follow bad examples. Obey God's law, but don't follow bad examples. Jesus kept warning people to watch out for those law teachers who sought praise from men and abused their privileges. Now, not all teachers of the law acted that way, but many of them did. And Jesus is calling them out here, saying what? They like to go around in flowing robes, long white linen garments with fringes worn by priests, teachers, and Levites. Why was that such a thing? Well, they would wear these things. It'd be a little bit... How many of you have seen like a graduation ceremonies? And, you know, someone how sometimes they'll have uh, people who have honors. They'll get special things on their robes. Or if you get master's or even doctoral degrees, you get all of these things that get put on your robe. Well, they would walk around like that as a way of saying, imagine then if a teacher then would go into a classroom each day in that row and all of that just to say, hey, 
Look at me. Look at, you know, commend me for who I am, for all that I have achieved and accomplished here. And so they like to do that, to draw attention to, look how much I know, right? They like to be greeted in the marketplaces with formal titles. By the way, is there anything wrong with acknowledging someone as a teacher or that? No, but what did they, they liked the acclaim. They like to go in the market, they like to be acknowledged. Rabbi, teacher, teacher. They like that honor. There's nothing wrong with honor and respect, is there? But they were what? They were seeking it out. They were seeking it out. They loved that. They craved that. They also, they had to have the most important seats in the synagogue, those that were reserved for dignitaries. They were situated in the front of the, of the uh, area there, and there was a chest that contained the scrolls of the scriptures facing the whole congregation, and they liked to be seated up there, right there with it, so everyone could see them. And also then, they wanted the places of honor at banquets, uh, special evening meals at which they were seated next to the host, and they received preferential treatment then. You know, it's true, though, too, that, that some of these first century law teachers, they would do this, but they did not receive any formal pay for their services, but they were dependent, rather, on the hospitality of devout Jews then. Unfortunately, though, there were abuses for that. Jesus charges them here. He's saying they devour widows' houses. What did he mean by that? Well, it was a figure of speech for how they would exploit the generosity of people of limited means, especially widows. They unethically appropriated people's money and property. So here are these widows. They're already in a vulnerable position. They didn't know who, who could they turn to. So they would go to their spiritual leaders, right? And their spiritual leaders, in effect, would become like their financial advisors, if you will, who would help them, and they would take control of their property and their money, and they would abuse it, and they would use it then for themselves. Their greed, they would feed their greed then with that. So Jesus says what? They devour widows' houses then and doing such a thing then as that. Also what? They would make lengthy prayers. How many of you know people that just like to just go on and on and on talking. You get them started and they just don't stop. Don't you hate people like that? Anybody know anybody like that in here in this? That likes to just go on and on and on, right? No, but they would do that. And sometimes their prayers, they would go on and on and on. What? Sing, let me show everybody how much I know and how spiritual I am by this lengthy prayer, reciting all these scriptures and saying this and that and this and that. Again, to try to impress people. It was all about pleasing people then rather than pleasing God. And so Jesus condemns them for all this kind of behavior, this conduct, their greed, their hypocrisy. And instead of helping to point people to God, they were doing what? They were all making it about themselves. Teachers such as these will be punished most severely. Jesus says what? They will receive greater condemnation at God's final judgment. Did you know that? That God is going to judge every person individually, the wicked and believers, right? Now, believers aren't judged for their sins, but they are judged for what? 
for their works, for what they have done for Christ. And the the purpose isn't to condemn. The purpose is what? To reward, right? But the unbeliever, the wicked, their judgment will be just. And for some, their judgment will be harsher. And who is going to get the greater condemnation? The religious leaders and rulers who all should have known better, but were leading people the wrong way. They are the most responsible and accountable of all. Have you know in the scripture passage, James chapter 3, verse 1, James says what? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And you know, I think about that often. I think about that often. Take that very seriously. In fact, there's something I have. I've, I've told you about this before, but I'm not sure. There is a, something, a, a, a piece of paper that I keep right here in my Bible, right here, and it's called, I call it caveat pastor. Okay, how many know the expression caveat emptor, which means what? Let the buyer beware, right? Caveat, careful, em, careful buyer, be careful what you're buying, right? Caveat, be careful pastor, because on here there's a list of names. These are people in ministry who have publicly failed, egregiously failed in some way. You know, maybe it's a moral failing or some other kind of scandal. They were unfaithful in some way or another. They went off the, the rails theologically. There might be any number of ways in which we can fail. And, and, and some of these names, you have heard of some of these names, but some of these you haven't. Some of these are public names. You know, others are people that I went to school with. And I know these things, and I like to look at this list and say, be careful, pastor. Be careful thinking you stand, lest you fall, right? So Jesus then, he turns to the crowds and to his disciples who were in the temple, listening to his debates with the various religious leaders. He warns them, and he's saying that, Now, they do have a certain authority. They sit in Moses' seat, which means what? They have the authority to teach the people the word of God. And so you need to understand that, and you need to obey as they are rightly teaching you the word of God. It says, so, so listen to what they say, what they teach, but don't do what they do. You know, we have an expression about what? Practice what you preach. They didn't practice what they preached. Well, that just because they didn't, that didn't mean then that they didn't have to listen to anything they were saying. Saying, no, you need to listen to what they're saying when they're teaching the word of God. But don't follow their example of not practicing what they preach. Don't do what they do. Because all of their works were done not to please God, but to what? To receive the acclaim of people. He speaks of their phylacteries. What were those? Well, phylacteries were small leather pouches that contained strips of parchment with Old Testament verses on them. We see that in Exodus 13 and Deuteronomy 6 and 11 where God tells people to, to write these things and, and attach them. They kind of were a little bit over-literal with uh, atta- putting the word of God on them and on their foot. They would actually literally put scripture written out on them. Do you think that's exactly what God had in mind for them to do? But no, he was telling them what? That the word of God should be something that is, 
that becomes a part of us, that it's honest, that's something we wear. And they were taking it literally. And they wanted to make sure everybody saw how much scripture they were wearing around, right? So much so they even had to widen their clothes so that they had more room to put all these extra verses on there, right? You think maybe they were missing the point of why God said to do that? Yes, they were. And all the tassels of their prayer shawls were long and noticeable. These are things they're little reminders of. See how much I pray? They love the places of honor. They love to be called rabbi, meaning what? They wanted to be seen, they wanted to be recognized for the great scholars that they were. But Jesus says, such is not to be the attitude among you. These titles, rabbi, father, teacher, these titles aren't things to be sought, but rather what? They were to be humbly serve one another as brothers and sisters. So he gives the warnings here. Obey God's law, but don't follow bad examples, and then humbly serve, lest you be humbled. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now again, Jesus was not saying that there was to be no authority among some among them. He is what? He has given his church teachers and leaders, right? But the point is, is the attitude of those teachers and leaders, that it's not about seeking positions of honor. It's about humbly serving others. There's ultimately only one who deserves that great honor. Who is that? The one master, the one teacher, the one rabbi. Leaders, then, should not be seeking glory for themselves, but rather leadership is an opportunity to serve others. And so the Pharisees who exalted themselves would be humbled, and Jesus' followers, by humbling themselves in service, would someday be exalted. So he's warnings here for his disciples and for the multitudes, but now we see a series of woes. And he says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So we see this series of woes here. We're going to see a, a, a length, a, a pretty li- a lengthy list here of condemnation that Jesus has for these her- hypocrites. Who are these Pharisees, these scribes, these teachers of the law? We're saying, first of all, in this first, well, what? They're hypocrites. That is, they put on a show. They, they say one thing and do another. They're hypocrites. They are spiritually lost, and they're hindering others from entering the kingdom. They shut up the kingdom of heaven. They themselves don't go in, nor do they allow, or they hinder those who are attempting to go in. So Jesus then was saying, do, do you th- how do you think the official teachers of the law were responding or thinking as Jesus was saying these things? It's going to get worse, okay? It's going to get worse. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Hypocrites! 
For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. He's saying what? You guys are a bunch of greedy manipulators and pretentious show-offs. How do you think that went over with them? Greedy manipulators. Why? Again, because they were in positions of trust. And so there were people who would trust them, trust their advice and listen to them. And especially the most vulnerable of all in this society, the widow. And they would say, well, let me, let me help you with that. I'll, I'll manage this for you. And then they would greedily exploit it. Pretentious show-offs, making a pretense of their long prayers. Very lengthy public prayers designed to impress people with their knowledge and their spirituality. But they weren't impressing God. And in fact, all that they were doing is what? They were setting themselves up for greater condemnation. Because they should know better, first of all. And second of all, what were they doing? They were leading people astray. And God takes that very seriously when you lead people astray. There's more. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. These are the religious, the respected religious leaders and rulers. And he says, what are you? What are you? Well, <clears throat> you're very poor spiritual examples. It says they would travel land. See, there, were, there were people who, these were Gentiles who were converted to the God of Abraham. Isaac and Joseph, right? They, would, they, would pros, they were proselytes and Jacob. Right? Sorry, Jacob. So forgot about him. They would convert him. And in the process, though, rather than just bringing them to faith in the true God, they would also, what, immerse that person in all of their pharisaical traditions and extra legal things and that. And he says, and you would make that person twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. <laughs> How do you think they liked hearing that? A son of hell? What was he telling them? He was telling them, what? You're hell bound. Oh, you think you're the spiritual leaders and rulers? No, you're going to hell. And you're leading people there. And you're making the people there even worse than you. It gets worse. He says, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold at the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. 
And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. What is Jesus saying to them? He's saying what? They're liars. They're dishonest. What were they doing? Well, Jesus in this way, he is pointing out the tricky character of the leaders. They would take oaths. They would make sacred vows. So they, would, they would assert things. But then they would make distinctions about what they were swearing on. You see, if you swore by the temple or you swore by the altar, that meant you didn't actually have to fulfill your vow. You could be dishonest. You could lie. So thus, while appearing to be making a binding oath, the reality is, is they inwardly had no intention of keeping it. But they would say, but if you swear by the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar, then you're bound by that. In other words, what? It was a, a way of working around to where you could have the appearance of making these great oaths, saying, asserting certain things or asserting things, and then the reality is, is you had no intention of actually fulfilling it. So they were being dishonest. And again, it was all about show. So he denounces them as blind guides, blind fools. It gets worse. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. In other words, what were they doing? They were elevating small things while neglecting weightier matters. They were what? They were making sure they knew they were supposed to tithe, give 10% of everything, including you know, all of their income, even like from, their, their, from their little gardens with the herbs that they would get, they would tithe 10% of that. Make sure you're tithing that. But meanwhile, ignoring things like what? Oh, justice and mercy and faith. Straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. A gnat was an unclean, it was the smallest unclean animal, okay? They were not to eat gnats. I'm glad for that. How many would want to eat gnats anyway, by the way, right? So they would strain it to make sure they didn't want to swallow a little gnat that might get into their tea. So they'd strain that gnat out because they didn't want to swallow anything unclean but while they're so busy straining that out so they don't drink that little unclean gnat, they're swallowing. A camel was an unclean animal. You know, they were not to eat camels. It was this rather large animal, right? Meanwhile, they're swallowing a camel. You see Jesus' point here, right? Tithing on all these little things, but ignoring justice and mercy and faith. It gets worse. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear outwardly beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also appear 
outwardly righteous. You, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what? They were outwardly righteous, but inwardly corrupt. They were concerned with outward appearances, external cleanliness, making sure the cups and the dishes, all these things were in the law about how they needed to make sure they were clean before they would eat out of them. But they weren't concerned about was it the inside. Again, looking good on the outside, but not concerned about the inside. They would whitewash tombs. They would say, go to the cemetery and make these tombs look beautiful, all whitewashed, looking clean and gorgeous, sparkling in the sun. But inside those tombs is what? Rotting flesh. He says, that's what you Pharisees are like. You look great on the outside by appearances, but inside your hearts are corrupt, like rotting flesh, dead men's bones. They were full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It gets worse. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Saying what? They had murderous hearts. They would say what? They wanted to honor the prophets who'd come before, those who had been killed. They said, oh, if we had lived back then, we wouldn't have put to death God's prophets the way they did. And yet, what were they doing at that very moment? What were they conspiring to do at that very moment? Not just kill God's latest prophet. He wasn't just a prophet. Who was he? He's the son of God. He's God himself. And they're already plotting to murder him. So he condemns them. He calls them snakes, a brood of vipers. Their eternal destiny was hell, the place of eternal punishment. Interesting, Jesus speaks with authority here. Then he's saying, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Who, uh, who, who sends prophets? God does. And yet he says what? I send you. Meaning what? Jesus is God. Again, people say Jesus never claimed to be God, to which we say, have you read the scriptures, Right? So he says, I, you know, I said, he has sent them in the past, and, they, and they, their forefathers killed him. And now he speaks of a prophecy here saying what? That he is going to continue to send people to them. And what are they going to do in the future? They're going to kill them too. They're going to persecute his followers. 
It says, and is this anything new? No, this has been happening from Abel to Zechariah, from beginning to end. Abel was the first righteous person to be martyred, killed by his brother Cain, right? All the way to Zechariah, which is in the book of Second Chronicles, which is the last of the Jewish historical books in the Old Testament. So from Abel to Zechariah, they have killed God's prophets. They're now plotting to kill him, the son of God. And later on, they're going to persecute his followers. They have murderous hearts. So what did Jesus say about these spiritual leaders? Hypocrites, spiritually lost, hindered others from entering the kingdom, greedy manipulators, pretentious show-offs, hell-bound poor spiritual examples, dishonest liars, elevating small things while neglecting the weightier matters, outwardly righteous but inwardly corrupt and murderous hearts. Other than that, they weren't so bad though, really, right? Jesus, tell us what you really think about them, right? Well, we've heard what he thinks about them. What's Jesus feel about them? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We saw warnings to God's people woes for the Pharisees, and now waiting. In a final lament over the city of Jerusalem, Jesus states his desire. He had sent prophets to them over the years, but how often he wanted to gather them together. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wing? But they were not willing. And now because of that, then, They will be left desolate. Judgment is coming upon them. And he was going to go away. He, their Messiah, was going to go away. But not forever. He would go away until, and then they would see him no more. Until when? Until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a reference to what? The second coming. So judgment was coming. He was going away. And then they were going to wait and wait and wait until he comes again. Jesus isn't through with his people. He is coming again. But until then, they must wait. How much longer must they wait? Only the Lord knows But given the events in Israel and the news of late, I think that we can see that that day is indeed drawing closer and closer, can't we? I'm not saying that what is happening in Israel now is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. 
Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it certainly shows how it's going to happen, doesn't it? It shows the likelihood, not only, and in fact the inevitability, that guess what? This is how the world ends. This is what ushers in final judgment. All the nations of the world converging on Israel. For 2,000 years, there was no nation of Israel. And then all of a sudden, it popped back up in 1948. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Meanwhile, I want to engage in a little imagination with me for a moment. Jesus is engaged with these religious leaders. He's calling them out for their arrogant, hypocritical self-righteousness. He's warning them of condemnation to come. And as he is doing that, somewhere out there in the city, there is a poor widow who is making her way to the temple. And she is everything the scribes and the Pharisees are not. She is humble and dependent on the Lord. Her trust is not in herself, but rather her faith is in the Lord. She desires to give and to serve, not to be seen by others, but out of a sincere heart of love and faith in God. And as she is making her way to the temple, Jesus takes a seat opposite from the treasury of the temple. The treasury in the temple is the place where people would go to leave their gifts and their offerings for various needs. Would you be surprised if I told you that there were some people who would make quite a show of it to make sure that everyone could see how much they were giving and who loved to do that especially? The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, right? I almost said religious losers, but no. The religious leaders, right? Mm-hmm. So some people, they're making quite a show of how much they're giving. Well, let's see what happens next. It says, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and he saw how the people put their gifts of money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For all these, out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So here are the devourers of widows' houses putting on a show of how much they're giving. Well, here's one who maybe she had more than that at one point, and this is all she has left. And she put this in. By the way, this is not a parable. This is a true event. So Jesus sees them here. People were putting in all their coins. 
And by the way, is there anything wrong with putting a lot of money into the uh, treasury? No, the issue isn't how much one gives or how little one gives. What is the issue? The heart, right? So they're all putting in lots of money, and I'm sure making sure people were seeing it too. But here comes this widow with two mites. What was a mite? A mite was the smallest little coin they had. Two mites put together were worth one sixty-fourth of a Roman denarius, which was a day's wage for a laborer. So basically she's putting in the equivalent of a couple of pennies. You might say after everything Jesus had to say about the Pharisees, now she was going to put in her two cents. I couldn't resist. I was waiting all week to throw that out there on you there. But Jesus says, you know what? That two cents she just put in, that's more. She gave more than all those others. Because what? They gave out of their abundance. It was no sacrifice for them to give what they give. But this, this is all she had. And it shows what? That she was relying on God to meet her needs. She had faith in God. So the widow then stands in dramatic and marked contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees. And she is a recipient then of God's commendation. Self-righteousness, faith-righteousness. You know, there are two ways one can go about becoming righteous or becoming acceptable to God. One is the way of self-effort and self-righteousness. Another is the way of God's gift, faith-righteousness. Spoiler alert, only one of them actually works, though. There's only one way to be made right with God. Which way is it? Self-righteousness or faith-righteousness? Faith. Faith-righteousness, you see, because righteousness, a right standing with God, holiness, moral goodness, care, this is a gift from God which is received by faith. So the scribes and the Pharisees are fine examples of self-righteousness, but the poor widow is a good example of faith righteousness. She proved her faith and her trust in God by what she did. So what? Arrogant self-righteousness leads to condemnation, but humble faith righteousness leads to commendation. What am I to do? Well, let's say first, trust in Christ's righteousness, not your own. We have to trust in the gift of righteousness to be made right with God in the first place, right? To have a right relationship with God, to be declared holy in his sight, that's a gift. It's a gift, and it's received by faith. Trust. Trust in Christ's righteousness, not your own, because you're not and I'm not, none of us are. So trust in Christ's righteousness. But you know, once we are in right relationship with God through faith, do we need to continue to trust in his righteousness and not our own? Absolutely, every day, every day. Humbly serve others and let God exalt you. Don't do things to be put on a show for others because you will be humbled. But trust God to exalt you in the right time.
And then finally, remember, remember that God sees all and he will reward you for all you do truly for him. You're on heaven's smile. You're on heaven's camera, right? Now the good news is your sins are all forgiven. Your destiny is secure in Christ. Your righteousness is in him. But what you do, what I do, what we do matters. God sees it and he will reward it. So don't do to be seen by others, but do to be seen by God who will see, who will remember, and will reward you for all that you do truly for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this eternal hope that we have in Jesus. God, I pray that we would learn from these examples, from the negative example of the scribes and the Pharisees, but also then this positive example of this, this poor widow who shows us faith and faith righteousness. Lord, may we follow her example and not the example of the scribes and the Pharisees. May we trust in Christ and his righteousness for us, a saving righteousness, a sanctifying righteousness. Lord, I know this is dangerous to pray, but humble us, Lord, that we might serve others. Exalt us as you will, when you will, how you will. And Lord, may we remember, we are on your camera always. We thank you that our sins are forgiven. But we pray that we would be found faithful, that what we do, we would do truly for you, knowing that you will see, you will remember, and you will reward, you will commend it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.